I tell the honest stories behind the facade of women's issues, alternative health, and life in general. As a retired midwife, I no longer have a horse in the race of health care. Covering birth, death, parenting, and the female experience, whatever that is and however that looks. If it happened to someone who identifies as female, it's fair game. Welcome to my show, Midwife Talks. I'm Lindy Casey, retired midwife. I discuss anything and everything, but mostly women's health, crunchy stuff, and birth stories. First, a little housekeeping. Thank you all for your support. Every time you listen to an episode, my heart just overflows with gratitude. Thank you. My next few episodes will be coming to you from along the Appalachian Trail. My son is nearing the end of it, and I'll be providing trail support for him. That means I'll meet up with him at crossroads and bring him water, food, or whatever. I'll be posting pictures on my Instagram account, and we'll see what stories I find out on the trail in New England. Oh, and I'll actually be living out of my car for the duration, so you'll hear the trials and tribulations of car camping as a woman alone. And I want to remind you that you can be part of the conversation. If you go to my podcast host, anchor.fm slash midwife dash talks, at the bottom of the page is a link to add your two cents. I want to hear from you. Now, on to today's subject. Mental health issues in a woman's life can take many forms and have many causes. It can sometimes take center stage during the birthing year, or it may just be a background hum. From ADHD to OCD to intellectual disabilities to full-blown schizophrenia, I've seen it all. Find a shady spot to relax and let me tell you about some of my experiences with mental illness during pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. I think the first thing I want to say is it's very important for me to keep in mind that these are real people with real struggles. I hope you keep that in mind too. They deserve dignity and respect. I'm going to tell you a few stories that touch on how, as a midwife, I've been called upon to deal with a wide variety of life issues. Let's go. A couple were having their first baby and they seemed just a little off. For one thing, the man dominated the conversation at every prenatal visit. I always tried to include the client's partner in conversations, but he really took over. He had lots of opinions too, and they weren't always sound. The pregnant person, I don't know if they were actually married or not, seemed very comfortable with him having all of the opinions. At a certain point in prenatal care, I'd spend a portion of one visit talking about what equipment I brought to births. I wanted all of my clients to understand the value and use of each thing I brought and to know how seriously I took my role as midwife. We got to that point in this couple's care. I showed them my bags and took out items to explain what I might use them for, what emergencies might come up. The man crossed his arms and leaned back in the chair. I got a real sense of superiority from him. He said, you don't need to bring any of that. So I went over some of the things again. I mean, come on, why did they hire a midwife at all if they don't want me to use every tool I have at my disposal? When I got to my Doppler, he shook his head. You don't need that. Now, some people don't like Dopplers. It's a small device to listen to the baby's heart rate. 
The way it works is it sends out bursts of sound at a frequency we can't hear. When the sound encounters tissue, it bounces back. It's the same principle as an ultrasound machine, except instead of an image on a screen, I can hear the whoosh or tick-tick of blood flow and heart valves. The reason why it's important to monitor fetal heart rate is that it's often the first sign that the baby's undergoing some sort of stress. There's all sorts of things that can put a fetus under stress, and some of them are actually fatal. In a hospital setting, a patient usually has continuous fetal monitoring. A belt is placed around her belly and it picks up the heartbeat, which is sent to a printer where it keeps track of number of beats per minute and how it relates to contractions. But in a home setting, I used intermittent fetal monitoring, more or less frequently depending upon how the baby sounded and what other factors there were. Him saying I didn't need to listen to the baby's heartbeat was strange. I explained the importance of keeping track of how the baby was doing, and he waved his hand in the air dismissively. He said he would tell me how the baby was doing from across the room. He stood up and actually walked across the prenatal room and stood by the door, and he pointed at the lady's big belly and said, I can tell from here. Okay, that was definitely odd. I like to honor a couple's wishes as far as I could within safe parameters but relying on him to give me a rundown on how his baby was from across the room, that was not something I was comfortable with. I just said something noncommittal and dropped it. I figured we'd bring it up later when we got closer to the birth. The day finally came when labor started and Kay and I went to their home. It was a small house in an established neighborhood and the only other person there was an older lady who turned out to be the pregnant woman's grandmother. We hauled everything out of Kay's truck, slinging the bags over our shoulders and carrying the birth stool. Inside, immediately, I felt like I was suffocating. The air was humid, but beyond that, there was a smell and a feel to it that was just smothering. The guy happily told us he was diffusing peroxide into the air. Some people believe that putting food-grade peroxide into a humidifier actually cleanses the air. I'm not going to debate that. However, in higher concentrations, it is most definitely not healthy. You should use food grade peroxide if you're going to do this, which is usually a concentration of about 35%. The stuff you get at the store for wound cleaning is probably going to be 3%. And that food grade peroxide should be further diluted. So one quarter cup of food grade peroxide in one gallon of purified water. Yes, if you do the math, that will bring the solution back down to about 3 to 5%. But starting with food-grade peroxide means there won't be other additives in it. Okay, what this guy did is he just filled up the humidifier reservoir with full-strength food-grade hydrogen peroxide. The air was unbreathable. We spent a lot of time hanging out outside talking with the grandma. It took days for our lungs to recover. When it came time to fill out the birth certificate, the man put down that his name was King Tut and his social security number was 0000000000. He also put down a fictitious address. You might be saying, where's the mental illness in this story? Sure, this was some weird stuff, but you know, we're all entitled to believe what we want. Number one, trying to prevent us from bringing life-saving equipment to their birth because he said we didn't need it. Number two, saying he could tell what condition the baby was in from across the room. Is that mind reading or uh, I don't know. 
Number three, not having a sense of self-preservation to not suffocate everyone in his house with peroxide vapor. And number four, saying he was King Tut. By the way, the subject of the Doppler never came up again. We used it just like we always did, and he never said anything. At one time, there was a group of midwives in Las Vegas who all worked independently but came together to work at a birth center that was owned by a doctor. We got along well enough, and it was fun to do over 20 births a month. At that volume, it was inevitable that we would have conflicts with two or more clients in labor at the same time. When it was a birth center patient, the midwife whose turn it was on call had to stay. She couldn't leave to attend to her own client. So this time, another midwife was on call and was taking care of a birth center patient when one of her own clients went into labor. She asked them to come hang out at the birth center until the patient delivered. I was next up on call at the birth center and was hanging around since I knew it would be my turn next, so the other midwife asked me to check in on her clients. They were in a tiny room that we didn't really use. I guess when you think about it, it really was sort of wrong to bring a private client into the birth center. It wasn't our birth center, and the owner probably wouldn't have liked it since he wasn't going to get any money from that delivery. I think that's why the couple were in the tiny, unused room. I went in and introduced myself. They were young, first-time parents, and nervous. I don't think the lady was very far along in labor, but it was probably scary, and here I was, someone she didn't know, and in a birth center, no less, not her own home. I can sympathize. However, very quickly, she was almost out of control, and there I was trapped in this tiny room with a howling woman and her terrified partner between me and the door. And then she started batting at things in the air, things that weren't there. She was talking to the things, telling them to get away, and all while crying and writhing. It was awful. I tried to calm her down, but nothing worked. She didn't want to be there, and she sure didn't want to be there with me. She wanted to be at home with her midwife. Labor and birth is challenging under the best of circumstances. From what I could see, it was unbearable while suffering through whatever it was that was going on with that lady. Eventually, I heard a baby cry, so I knew the other patient had delivered. I managed to get to the door and step out where I saw the other midwife. I told her what was going on, and she was incredulous. She said she'd never seen any sign of mental illness in her client before. I don't think she believed me. Since I was next up, I said I'd take over postpartum care of the patient who had just birthed, and the other midwife was free to take her client home. And she did. I hope she calmed down once she was in her own space. What could cause someone to see things like that? While we could say that it was stress or hormones or hyperventilating, I tend to think an otherwise mentally healthy person wouldn't hallucinate under those stressors. The only other thing I could think of was that the woman maybe had taken a drug thinking it would help her handle labor better. But somehow, I just don't think that was the case. I know a lot of my listeners are really into doing things the natural way and being self-sufficient. My daughter Christina is the same way and had a dream of owning a farm. While the acreage she pined for didn't pan out, she began to live her dream where she was, on a city lot in the midst of a metro area. She raises chickens for eggs and manure, grows vegetables and fruits, and she preserves what she produces. You can watch what she's up to and learn some things about urban farming on her YouTube channel, Casey Urban Farm. 
Recently, she's covered dry canning, tomato growing, and different types of raised growing beds. I love that I can walk through her urban oasis every day and see fresh flowers, organic foods, all to the farmy sounds of a rooster crowing. Now you can too. Visit youtube.com slash kcurbanfarm to see what's growing. That's youtube.com slash kcurbanfarm, C-A-S-E-Y-U-R-B-A-N-F-A-R-M. Before I opened my birth center in Wisconsin, I was at loose ends for a few years. I'd moved there from Nevada and really thought I was done being a midwife. I jumped at the chance to work at an Amish birth center in southern Wisconsin just to stay busy, if for no other reason. Truth be known, though, I was excited to work with the Amish. They have a reputation for being natural in all things. If there's an interest in hearing about them, I'll do a podcast just on Amish people. But for now, this story fits into my subject of mental health issues. The birth center was actually an old farmhouse in the middle of a working farm. There were birthing rooms, exam rooms, and midwife resting rooms. We got a call that an Amish lady was coming in, in labor. She was brought to the farm by a driver, one of the many people who offer their services to Amish people, to get them places. I'll call the lady Alma because I think that was her name, and I'll call her husband John since almost all of the men there were named John. Alma was a tall, thin woman. In her plain clothes of long black dress and head covering, she seemed almost homely. Probably her height had been a problem in finding a husband, which is why she was married off to John. She was definitely not ugly, just tall and plain. Alma was so kind and so gentle. She labored quietly and calmly. This was not her first baby. I'm not sure how many kids she had, but I knew there were at least several more at her home some distance away, maybe 30 miles north. When John was a boy, he'd been kicked in the head by a horse. This had caused some brain damage. He was like a child. He stayed by Alma's side while she labored, much like a toddler would with their mother, a little fearful and clingy. Can you imagine being part of a community that looked at you and said, we don't think you'll find a husband, so here, marry this guy. He'll be like a kid for the rest of his life. You'll have to wipe his nose and hold his hand so he doesn't get lost and, oh, by the way, have sex with him so you can have a bunch of kids. I think it was the last part that really bugged me. He was so childlike, it seemed wrong to think of him being in a sexual relationship. Alma asked me to help her take her pins out so she could take a bath, and I carefully pulled out all of the many straight pins that held her apron to her dress. After a bath, she put on a long nightgown and said she thought it was time. She laid down on the bed and pushed out her baby, quietly and calmly. But John was so excited. He kept touching the baby's face and looking at its tiny fingers. He was filled with wonder and he was beaming. He was almost vibrating. Imagine a two-year-old or a three-year-old. But Alma was tired. She asked me if I would take John home. He got in my car and I tried to make small talk with him, something I'm ordinarily very good at. But he really was so brain damaged that I couldn't follow his train of thought. He had no idea where he lived, so I was grateful that Alma had given explicit directions to me before we left. It was dark out, the middle of the night, when I pulled into the yard of a large farm. Well, it was large by Amish standards. Remember, they don't ordinarily use gas combustion engines or electricity, so the size of their holdings are limited to what they can handle with human and animal power only. 
So it was pitch black, and I left my headlights on because I wasn't sure which building I should take John to. I knew I shouldn't just let him out of the car. Then a figure appeared. A young teenage boy came towards us, picking his way across the farmyard. John got out, happily chattering in Pennsylvania Dutch. That's a dialect of German that the Amish use. The boy took John's hand, and I heard him call him Dot, which means Dad. They disappeared into the darkness between two buildings, hand in hand, a son and his father, who will never grow up. By the time I woke up the next morning, Alma had gone home, and I never saw her again. Many of you know about my side gigs. I want to take a moment to talk about one of them, a little series of easy reader books I write that I'm super proud of. It's called Kids on C Street, and it's all about some children who lived on one street in one small town in the 1960s. Hashtag Boulder City, Nevada. Every book includes a list of all the words in the story and has been rated to reading level, which is usually first to third grade. I write the books for my great-grandchildren, but your kids can read them too, and I hope you'll enjoy a little wholesome trip down memory lane. You can find them on wishpickle.com or Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Search for Kids on C Street by Lindy Casey. There were two women who came in together for first appointments. Susan was tall, just like Alma, except she wore trendy clothes and makeup, and her hair was bright blonde. She was, she was like a model. She was so beautiful. Steph was average height, brown hair, and more down-to-earth. Both women were cute and seemed like good friends, excited to be having babies at the same time. The men who came with them were Ben and Mike. Ben was Susan's partner, and Mike belonged to Steph. And there were a bunch of kids who came with them, too. I was so confused. Some called Mike Dad, and some called Susan Mom, and some called Steph Mom. It turned out that Susan used to be in a relationship with Mike, and they had a couple of kids. Steph had been married before and had a few kids, and then the original couples broke up and Steph and Mike got together. All of the kids lived with Steph and Mike. All of them seemed to be on friendly terms. I got the sense that there was some drug abuse going on with Susan and Ben, but nothing outrageous. Susan wasn't sure how far along she was, since her belly seemed bigger than it should be, going by the date of her last period. I offered her an ultrasound, and she jumped at the chance. And there were two babies! Twins are always exciting to anticipate. For the parents, they're looking forward to two of everything and possibly wondering how they're going to handle their early months of babyhood. For the midwife, we have to line up at least one other experienced midwife and someone else who knows CPR and neonatal resuscitation. That means we need three qualified people at a twin's birth, at least. And there are risks associated with multiple pregnancies that are much less concerned for singletons. Midwives, well, at least good midwives, take twin pregnancies very seriously. Immediately, Susan, Ben, and I discussed what this news meant, how it might change their plans. Over the next several months, we refined our birth team and our vision of her birth and I noticed that the telltale sign of drug use I'd thought I'd seen earlier, well, it was more. It was more apparent. The scabby clawed up arms, the nervousness, evasiveness. This was around Christmas time. Susan had an appointment between Christmas Day and New Year's, and when she came in, she was alone. She wasn't with Ben, and she was distraught. On Christmas Eve, Ben had gone out. 
Susan had gone to bed. She was woken in the morning to the phone ringing. It was someone from Ben's family. When he left their house on Christmas Eve, he'd gone to his parents' house and hung himself in a tree outside the kitchen window. That was what his mother saw when she got up that Christmas morning, her son hanging dead in a tree. For various reasons, I risked Susan out of home birth, and she was terrified to go into the hospital. It turns out she was using drugs. Ben had probably also been using, and she was afraid they would drug test her and take her babies away from her. And that's exactly what happened. Steph had a beautiful birth at home on a big rug in her family room with all the kids there, except obviously for the twins. And the kids were all sitting on a day bed. They were just perched on it like little birds on a wire watching. I remember looking up at their faces moments after the baby was born from where I sat on the floor near Steph, and they were just beaming. As the years went by, I saw more and more clinical depression in my clientele, with many of them on antidepressants. There are risks and benefits to taking antidepressants during pregnancy. I'm talking about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. Without going into details of each medication, since I'm no longer a licensed care provider, I'll just sort of fluff over some of the main concerns. I told my depressed clients that the first thing to consider is, can you take care of yourself and your unborn baby if you don't take your medicine? If you aren't going to eat, can't sleep, or even have thoughts of self-harm, you should weigh those risks with whatever issues there might be with taking the drug that you're on. Like, there's a potential for premature birth, weight gain for the mom, and with one medication, there's an association with fetal heart defects. A connection between antidepressant use during pregnancy and the risk of autism and attention deficit or hyperactivity disorder in babies is unclear. But if the other option, not taking your meds, causes you to suffer or even succumb to suicide, then those might be risks you should take. Only you can make that decision and the best person to consult with would be your prescribing doctor. While most cases of depression in my prenatal clients were mild, I did have one case of postpartum depression that severely impacted the woman. Heidi was from Germany and spoke with a charming accent. She was tall and busty and always seemed a little confused. I don't know, maybe that had to do with the language issue. When she went into labor, I went to her condo. It was one of those two-story places with a vaulted ceiling over the living room and stairs that ran up to a landing at one side. She'd been laboring and seemed a little agitated. Not like labor agitated, but like anxious. Suddenly, she ran for the stairs, calling out that she had to go to the bathroom. It's not unusual for women to mistake the first urges to push for having to poop, so I followed right behind her. I remember she was wearing dark polyester pants. She didn't get four steps up those stairs when she gave a mighty push. I ran up behind her and tugged at her pants. I knew the baby was coming. But she held onto the waistband for a moment, and we had a little tug-of-war. Another push, and I saw the crotch of the pants bulge with what I knew was the baby's head. I told her, Heidi, we got to get these pants off of you and give the baby some room. But she crawl-walked faster than I would have thought possible up the rest of the stairs and lunged into a bedroom. As soon as she landed on the bed, falling onto her side, I pulled the pants off, and the baby was born the rest of the way into the air instead of polyester. I wouldn't have considered this a traumatic birth. It was unusual, but it wasn't really traumatic. But birth trauma is fully in the view of the birthing person. 
She never said she was traumatized, so I wondered if she had some sort of history of abuse she hadn't wanted to talk about before, because she sure acted freaked out. By the time I left that day, all seemed to be well. But the next day, she called and was very upset. She wouldn't or couldn't tell me how or why she was upset, but she was crying and she acted fearful. I took her behavior at face value and gave her a safe place to be by simply sitting with her for hours. When she was feeling up to it, she would arrive at my office and stay all day while I did prenatal appointments. This lasted weeks, and then one day, she just didn't show up. I touched bases with her and she said she'd just been busy and she sounded happy. I have to wonder if the old ways of having a mother, or your grandmother, an aunt, or even a neighbor come stay with you after you gave birth might have been a saving grace and prevented postpartum depression. Postpartum psychosis is another animal altogether, and thankfully I've never had a client suffer from it. Delusions, paranoia, detachment from the baby, those are just some of the symptoms. I suspect my mother had it after her first baby, and it sounds dreadful and terrifying. If you feel depressed or out of control, please seek help from your care provider. Even if you don't want to take medication, just go, okay? If there's one thing I want you to take away from this episode, it's that all of the things that happen to people, regular people, not pregnant, in their regular lives, happens when they're pregnant. If you are prone to depression, you might have worse depression while you're pregnant, or it might come out of nowhere. So it's really important to see somebody about it, talk to somebody about it, don't just let it go because it can just get worse. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. I appreciate every one of you. And remember, if you want to support what I do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have anything you'd like to add to this subject, you can be part of the conversation. Go to anchor.fm slash midwife dash talks and click on the message button. That's anchor.fm slash midwife dash talks. I'll see you in the next episode of Midwife Talks. Links to more information about the topics covered in this show can be found under the podcast tab.